Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and sadly, Patrick could not be here this weekend of all weekends due to some family travel that he has going on. I know, I know. With the exception of following, he and I have actually covered every single Christopher Nolan film on the podcast together so far. He's our favorite director. So my guest whose mouth is like dropping wide open, she's realizing she's having to fill some pretty big shoes. I fully expect to get Patrick's thoughts on Oppenheimer eventually once he sees it. We'll do another re-recording or something of it. But this is the cinematic event of the summer, and I am dying to discuss these two films. And so I called back up uh, one of the biggest fans of this entire weekend that I have known, someone that has been championing it for months and months and months. Uh, She's a member of the Hollywood Critics Association, and she writes for sites like Collider and Next Best Picture. It's Meredith Loftus. Welcome back. Hi, Ken. (laughs) Hi, Ken. Oh, I am Knuff. It's okay. Wait, is it Knuff? It's, or is it Ken? Uh, how do we pronounce? I think it's Knuff. Like it's a he is enough. He's Knuff, or at least that okay. is that's how it's I've a been weirdly it. pronounced word. Yeah. Now that I say it out loud, you know, like it looks really great on the hoodie. But yes, <laughs> when you verbalize it, it doesn't have the same flow as Kenergy. You know, that's true. Absolutely, and I totally missed that opportunity too. You were I should have done a high bar. <laughs> It was right there for us, dadgummit. But that's right. I did say back because Meredith was actually on the podcast earlier this summer when we did an FF Plus episode going over our top five favorite movies of the year so far. If you haven't checked that out, be sure and go back and listen to that one because she's got some great insights in there as well. That being said, this is a deep dive. This is where we spoil things and we talk in detail about the plot. So this is your spoiler warning. If you have not gotten to the theater yet to see Barbie and or Oppenheimer, please do so. And then come back and listen to this. But you definitely need to go see these two movies. See them while they're in theaters. Support them. Both of us have done a double feature day where we saw them together. And we can talk a little bit about maybe what order is best to do that in. But yes, here's your spoiler warning from this point on. It's on you if you keep listening. All right, Meredith. So in the last week and a half or so, you've kind of gone viral, for lack of better words. Somehow, some way, (laughs) you became the like face of the Barbenheimer cheerleading movement. How did that happen? I, you know... uh I didn't choose Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer chose me. Um, (laughs) I had no intention of getting remotely viral with this. There's so many other champions of Barbenheimer. I'm just a fan. The reason why it kind of blew up the way that it did, a reporter from Variety was doing a piece on Barbenheimer and reached out to the masses being like, hey, are you planning on seeing it opening weekend? Love to get your thoughts on it. I immediately email her like, oh, I'm in and I've got shirts. Like, So I got on the phone with her. I chatted with her. The article came out on Monday and I only had like one small quote in there. And I was like, I've peaked. This is, this is great. I was just featured in Variety. Cool. Me fangirling over Barbie and Oppenheimer. 
Then a producer reaches out to me from Inside Edition to be like, hey, I saw your quotes in Variety. I'd love to chat with you. We're doing our own piece. And it happens to be on camera. And I'm like, oh, okay. So it ended up being kind of a last minute thing. It happened Wednesday morning. The piece is up Wednesday afternoon. I start getting messages from people like, I saw you on TV. What happened? And I'm like... Oh boy, this is interesting. So from there, yes, like I I was featured in a Barbenheimer uh, segment for Inside Edition, which Nikki Novak was also on there just talking from like a professional standpoint of like how this kind of came to be. So to even be featured with her uh-huh. too, I was like, what am I doing here? Yeah. I'm just in my Barbenheimer <laughs> right. shirt. But then, so today I found out that I'm in... Uh, I was featured in a Facebook group that was memeing me saying, like, we've gone too far in a few places. And I'm like, we haven't gone far enough. Oh, you've definitely arrived. I have arrived. (laughs) And then uh, uh, the YouTube channel Film Speak used B-roll from the Inside Edition segment. So I'm featured in there twice. And I'm like, wait a second. Hold on. I recognize that person. So, yeah, I the segment itself has kind of gone off to other places. So I am so sorry if you've seen my face, but also, like, I embrace the fact that, like, Barbenheimer is here and it is the, the cultural phenomenon that it is right now, the box office story of the summer. Like, it, if this is how I'm going to be infamous or viral, I'm so glad it's over this and not over something ridiculous yeah but this is no kind doubt. of ridiculous I, but i love it anyways yeah but it's it's a positive thing right yeah. like you're you're because you have this incredible energy and excitement over movies i mean what's wrong with that that's what's been so amazing about the lead up to this event and i put that in air quotes but that's what it has become is because these are two highly respected highly beloved directors full of casts with just an incredible amount of talent and we had high expectations and do you think that they delivered i i know what you're saying but <laughs> i'm gonna frame it like a question of course they delivered of course they of delivered course right? yes. they delivered you know <laughs> and it wasn't just like all of what you just said about the the talent involved uh in front of and behind the camera the anticipation the fact that like we respect these two filmmakers and they have such a following and they really seem to be tapping into something that we've been craving as far as film fans, as far as seeing them like Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig just continue to expand what they're capable of. So Mm -hmm. it just felt like this perfect storm and I can honestly say, yes, it absolutely delivered. And the Rotten Tomatoes scores, whether you trust them or not, like they speak for themselves. Like they're both very positive. And I believe Cinema Score has also been really high as well. So, oh, I would imagine. Um, it has. I would expect Barbie's coming out of there with like an A plus. Oh, I, I, would. I have no doubt. Um, yeah. And even with Oppenheimer, too, like it is truly incredible to see. It's like, have two directors like them, these big studio films, which in a time of, you know, dealing with the SAG strike and the writer strike, show these studios like, hey, like we care about like, we care about movies, we care about TV shows, like we want to see 
uh, these actors like be able to thrive and like we showed up for these people and so I hope this is like a big message and especially since they're like thinking of moving Dune 2 and all these other movies are being thrown around like Mm. let this be a lesson to the studios like we care in numbers and yes we are writing your paychecks right now but it's because we're showing up for these people 100% It's, it's great great point like we are coming to this and we want to support you we want to give the money to you so give some of that money in a fair way to the people that make your movies for you and stop pocketing it all CEOs. Like it's very, very simple. Just get it done and let the industry continue to thrive and build off of this. Cause I think this is an interesting event too, because when you look at the box office numbers from the last several IP heavy films, things are trending way down, whether it's Marvel movies or the flash Mm -hmm. or the fast and furious entry like they're just they're going like this the new transformers nothing is living up to those billion dollar landmarks that they used to aim for and people came out and said no we want this kind of storytelling we want people that actually are going to truly give us something with a vision behind it for better for worse whatever we'll show up to go see it and find out how it's going to be because we know it's going to be unique and we know it's going to be mostly their singular idea of of storytelling and so i i really do hope that this sends a message i said this we both went and saw a double feature i've seen them both twice once as press screenings you've seen them both you've seen barbie twice right oppenheimer once. yes i i saw barbie uh, wednesday night and then yesterday at i guess the time of recording whatever um the i did do a double feature uh and i did oppenheimer first and then ended with Barbie. okay do you think that that's the way to go yeah i think so and i like that i actually bookend bookended uh it with barbie just so that the second time that i watched barbie i was able to really enjoy it that much more just because i was like so anticipating the first time like okay what's Greta gonna do with this and then you're just like whoa amazing and go through some whiplashes which i know we'll talk about in a bit but with oppenheimer in particular like that is a three-hour epic and for me it really does go by fair like it's paced fairly well there's only a couple spots where it's like okay we could have trimmed this maybe you know but by the end of it and especially the shot that it ends on it does leave you with the heaviness of like, I feel like I need to contemplate this. Whereas the last line in Barbie, it takes you out uh, with a laugh, even though there is some existential heavy stuff to like process with it. I get to leave on more of a, you leave on more of a high with Barbie. So I'm glad I did it the way that it did. Uh, What about you? How did you do it? Well, I saw, so I saw Barbie first for press Mm -hmm. and then Oppenheimer the next night. My Oppenheimer experience was horrible because we saw it in 70 millimeter, not 70 millimeter IMAX, but it's a theater that I honest to God don't think that we've seen anything in this theater since the Hateful Eight Roadshow. So that was four or five years ago now, maybe six. It's been a long time, but it's the only theater that we know of that still has a 70 millimeter projector in the area. Mm -hmm. So we know that they don't use it frequently. 
And for whatever reason, the AC was off. And by the end of the movie, we were, I mean, quite literally not exaggerating, piles of sweat on our bodies. And I didn't think it had affected me. But when I rewatched it in the air conditioning and IMAX, it was just a vastly different kind of feeling overall. And but for my double feature, I actually had to see Barbie first just due to timing. I kind of threw one in there this morning last minute before my Oppenheimer, which I'd bought way earlier. And, you know, even doing it with having seen them, I guess it's not quite as bad because I knew what I was getting into. But even that it's you're right. Like, I really hope that most people who did the double feature did Oppenheimer first and Barbie second because the levity is is needed and is welcome. Mm -hmm. Um, to to come out of it without that dour nature. Although I I also think that there's something to be said that, you know, I feel like I did get a lot of value out of seeing them two different nights too, because as cool as it is to be like, I did them both in the same day, I got to go home and feel the ending of Oppenheimer and kind of process it and without rolling right into Barbie mm-hmm. and then like losing some of that impact on me yeah uh, the first time around. i was really thankful that i got to watch i i did all of this with a good friend of mine and so after oppenheimer we had about a 50 minute window before barbie started so we like went to a restaurant afterwards so like we were kind of like processing in pieces together and it was so nice to be able to have like somebody else to just like talk through the like what we had witnessed while stuffing our faces with tacos before jumping into Barbie and feeling like, at least we know what's coming here. But yeah, I to be able to have that time to process, I think, is really necessary for something like Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, let's jump into the actual movie. So we're going to do Barbie first. And I kind of, this is loose notes that we have for this, but I want to talk about it first as entertainment. like purely as spectacle because i think that it is really perfect in this way and we may differ a little bit on the execution of the full satire elements of it but the production design the costuming the song and dance numbers all the inspiration that greta has told us going into this that she had things like singing in the rain in oklahoma i ate this stuff up like i mean this was a candy colored dream i was not expecting boy band dance numbers i thought that it was so much fun and it was just never ending entertainment the speed at which it goes the frequency of jokes all the performances everybody feels like they completely understood their assignments and i think brilliantly looks and acts like dolls when they're supposed to i don't even know how to like phrase that i mean just their ability to not be quite human but at the same time have some personality i thought that that was just wonderful as somebody who owned a lot of barbies when they were uh growing up it gave me so much joy to hear the dialogue in particular from the first trailer when uh, Brian Gosling's Ken is like because we're girlfriend boyfriend I'm like that is exactly how I talked when talking with my Barbies so they have the mannerisms there even the way that like some of them move there's this moment where 
uh, Margot Robbie's Barbie just kind of collapses to the ground, and but she first starts like sitting, and then she like lays, and then she turns, and I'm like, that is the exact movements you do when you're moving your Barbie around. So like even the physicality of everybody was just so on point. I mean, you already said it, production design. I just wanted to like step through the screen and just enter Barbie land and just like touch everything. The the backdrop paintings to the costumes, like everything about it just made it so just like tangible and appetizing and pretty. And I, pink is not my favorite color, but I just wanted everything pink before me. I was like, I can't get enough of this. They did such a great job with, um, with really creating a world unlike anything that we've seen. Yeah, I totally agree. And it, and it feels both like toys, but also lived in at the same time. It's it's pretty unique to pull that off. And I love that there's so many real Barbie things in this movie. So everything, as far as I know, was pretty much straight from Barbie's history, not just the different Barbie characters, but you know, things like the little dog that poops. Like I was asking people, I was like, that, that can't be real. And then even in the credits, they show some of them during the credits. Um, my, I saw it with uh, my ex-wife actually. And one of the Barbies that came up, my daughter who's now 20 and in college, she didn't really play with Barbies much, but the video Barbie of all the Barbies in the world, there's a Barbie with this like screen in her back. And I very vividly remembered her having this and i turned to my ex-wife i was like didn't our daughter have this thing and i don't think she liked it and she's like yes she definitely had that out of nowhere my daughter texted me last night and she's like why didn't you tell me the barbie movie was so good and first of all i'm mad because i'm like ashlyn you know i have a podcast you come to press screenings with me what do you mean like you know i have social media i didn't have to personally tell you the barbie movie is so good like come on but at the same time she went on her own on opening night without telling me so good for her and her, her takeaway, she was like, I swear I had that video Barbie and it gave me nightmares. Oh and I was God. like, yes. But I think those kind of memories that this movie can evoke, obviously not really. I mean, I have it through my daughter. I, as a guy, I, I didn't grow up with Barbies, mm-hmm. which is part of this movie's point. And so I didn't have those experiences. But for me, it was really fun hearing people in the audience constantly be like oh, i had that one i had that one they're like nodding and talking to their people that are with them and that i i understand because as a fan of other ips like i do that at the transformers movie mm-hmm. the end of the transformers movie something happens that kind of alludes to a new crossover that may take place in the future and i literally am geeking out and it was that moment for women and girls and people who grew up with barbies women girls or otherwise and i just thought that was really well done yeah greta for ladybird for little women and now for barbie she really taps into something that like girls women just experience uh with childhood and to be able to evoke those type of nostalgia and memories uh it's really remarkable especially for barbie which like as you see in the movie, there's a lot of people that has a, a lot of baggage when it comes to Barbie, whether you were like me and had like so many Barbies or you hated Barbies or you played with them too hard and you had a lot of weird Barbies. Like 
it, she was able to just kind of show, I think, a full spectrum of, like, people's experience with Barbie in a really, like, tangible, relatable way that also kind of, like, cherished the, just what Barbie has come to mean to us as a people. Absolutely. And I think that that's a credit to a director like Greta, who very clearly could not have had all of these experiences herself. So this means that she was willing to reach out. She didn't just write this in a vacuum. I mean, I know she wrote it with her partner, but like she must have asked and and taken in the experiences of all different kind of people in order to be able to put so many of those on screen. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just her. And that is awesome because that's someone who who wants to get it right, doesn't just want to tell it their way. She wants to be respectful of this brand and what it meant to people. And I think she accomplishes that. I mean, it's... Which she does, yet she also gets away with so many jokes and so many, so much poking at not just Mattel, but Warner Brothers, at our world today in a way that, like, it, I cannot believe they got away with that, you know? Um, and just to have, like, fun little moments, like, I do think this is from Greta's brain when, we already said spoilers, when uh, there is an ad that comes up for, like, depressed, uh, depressed Barbie, and uh, it cuts to a clip from the BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice, which I had a very visceral reaction to that as much as like 2005 Pride and Prejudice is my is my favorite, Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden all the way. But like seeing that was like, you are in my brain right now. I don't like this, but this is also amazing. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot here that sort of builds on and mirrors, you know, what she was doing with Lady Bird and with Little Women too, because both of those are, essentially coming of age stories about women. Um, And here you have a character who's already a woman sort of theoretically, but maybe not mentally because she's a toy, but she's still coming of age uh, in a big way. I mean, like you said, the last line of the film really drives that home in a big way uh, when she becomes an actual human (laughs) and has to go to the doctor. Um, I'm not going to say that word, but (laughs) I, I will say it. Gynecologist. They paid off a joke when she first got to Venice Beach and saying, like, I have no parts. And then to come back (laughs) and to say, I need to see a gynecologist and then goes to credits. What a way to end a movie. I've never seen that before, but I love it. Yeah, it's heavy. I mean, I think part of it is also it's setting it up for a sequel. Let's be real, like Mattel is wanting to franchise their entire toy department, and I'm sure they want to build on this, but it is doing so in a way that is interesting and meaningful and heavy (laughs) because, I mean, it comes on the heels of her whole big conversation with the creator, Ruth Handler. Am I getting that right? Ruth Handler. And it it really is an interesting thing. I kind of want to talk to you specifically about this because we are both people of faith, and so. Sometimes when you see anything revolving characters in Hollywood trying to portray faith in movies, it can be tricky and and sometimes can even be offensive. I found this to be really moving um, and not necessarily trying to strictly make 
Ruth Handler like an allegory for God, but I mean, essentially that's what we're doing here. And there's a conversation that they have where she's like, I didn't create, I created you to go do whatever you're going to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I loved that about that. It wasn't, it wasn't, I, you weren't created to be stereotypical Barbie or to be president Barbie. Um, but you have the free will to go choose what you want to become and what you want to do with that life. Yeah. I love every scene that has to do with Ruth Handler played by Rhea Perlman, who does a really fantastic job. And that scene in particular, it's really beautiful to see Ruth really give Barbie the opportunity to have like this holistic view of dreams don't die, people do. I'm, you have the free will to do this, but I want you to know exactly what you're getting yourself into. And so that you can have the full confidence to like move forward with this decision. And which leads into this beautiful montage of just seeing women and girls of different ages um, just living life, whether it's through laughter, playing with dolls, or through tears, or celebrating birthdays, or being with friends, just to see this like picture of womanhood in the moment, and to know that like life is messy, life involves change, and you know how do we kind of like make sense of it and that is what it means to kind of be alive honestly is like how do we how do we uh move forward and live according to purpose but also have free will and I just think like that scene is just done so beautifully and very poignantly and though like that could have been the last scene and it would still have the same impact I'm glad it did have like the final scene that it does have um that scene in particular and of course the big uh america ferrera scene with um uh her speech about what it means to be a woman was just beautiful i uh, i still like uh, the two times i've seen it like i've teared up every time and it's just this picture of the messiness that comes with being a woman and being human honestly and every like contradiction that comes with it and like how do we like how do we make sense of it it's just that's fantastic i love hearing that Uh, obviously i'm i don't relate to that and i think this is what is part of what's so important about barbie is that as a man the things that i tend to be interested in or the, the aspects of my life are depicted in movies all the time. I mean, I don't ever have to wonder if someone in a movie feels the way I feel or has acted the way I feel or whatever. It just, it's very common. And so I did wish that we could have maybe had a little more weight to that. Well, it was weighty, but it was, it seems to be all like funneled into just this one speech Mm -hmm. moment. Um, And and it's powerful and it's brilliant. I just, I, I personally, I wanted the whole Mattel subplot to be done in the boardroom. Mm. I felt like if they had just made the joke in the boardroom, which is a hugely scathing joke, right? To walk into there and it's this table full of dudes trying to decide what toy to make for women. Like you made your point. Like that was good enough. Like, I think that 
when you brought them into the Barbie world, it sort of turned the real world into almost the same sort of slapstick in a way that I kind of wanted a little bit more separation. It was one of my minor criticisms there, but and maybe like replace it with a little bit more, I guess, seriousness, a couple serious moments here or there. I don't know. I But overall, I think the points were made so well throughout the sat- satire, the comedy. Yeah. And, and I'm not big on satire, but this one, every time they hit a zinger, it's like, I got no comeback. Like, you're right. <laughs> it is a little too on the nose in certain places. Like, yes, the boardroom scene at which Will Ferrell never changed. He was perfect. And, like, he played that just delightful, but also, like, kind of man-child that was just so... Very elf. Very Very elf. elf. He was very Buddy the Elf there. Um, I didn't necessarily mind the Mattel subplot going into the last act just because... Greta has said there is a lot of inspiration on like 50s musicals and there's just kind of like this cheese to the ending where everybody kind of like gets that wave off and things kind of get like nicely packaged and wrapped up even though like some plots just didn't need it or like oh they never touched us again and now it's getting resolved great like I wish we could have gotten more between like America Ferreira and her daughter on the side like not just see yes. like stuff on the background, but having a little bit more deliberate stuff happen on that side. But there's they crammed a lot into this movie, so it can be a little bit forgiving. But there are things like I left wanting. I mean, I mean, we have to talk about the Snyderverse joke, right? Like we have to talk about it well. and the Godfather <laughs> joke too. Okay, so the Godfather one I was fine with. I laughed and I felt very seen. I was like, <laughs> you're not wrong. You're you're not wrong. Like, that's all I need. And that's what I would do. You know, I mean, that was fantastic. The Snyderverse one, I'm not a Snyder bro. I am a fan of the film. To me, that was a joke that I 100% I've tweeted this to. I feel like that was a studio thing. Like, WB wanted... To poke fun at, I just have a hard time believing Greta and Noah were sitting around their coffee table writing this movie and thought, let's make fun of Zack Snyder fans. I just don't believe it. (laughs) I mean, it's bad enough that they have the Warner Brother Discovery sign in the background during that boardroom scene. And then. It's so pointed. Which, like, the whole. Which I want to say also, like, LA, as far as, like, how they made it to be. It was also kind of like this yes and world of like, it was an exaggerated version in a lot of ways. Like that chase scene in Mattel was like, that would not happen. Like who's wild. controlling yeah. this right now? <laughs> I I don't know. I feel like I could see the Snyderverse joke coming from Noah maybe, but I also like, it could have been a studio decision. Like, From what we do know, based on what the people at Mattel had said, like, there's very little change from what they initially saw versus the final product. So that could have easily been in there, which they could have made a Marvel joke, too, and I would have taken it and been fine. But, like, the way my theater erupted, not once, but twice over that. Mine did, too. It was... Yeah, it was... (laughs) It was one of the biggest joke, laughs people had. So, I mean, I, I totally get it. Like, I get why you would put it in there for sure. I, I 
I also my other my big criticism of this, and I'll get it out of the way, and then we'll go back to some good, good more good stuff. Is along with the Mattel subplot and the Mattel stuff, I felt that the movie is in a very tricky spot, and this is not a criticism necessarily of Greta per se, but just the existence of the movie. In a in a way, it is jokingly trying to critique a thing i.e this consumerism and corporate meddling while actually contributing to it by being part of a brand that is being resurrected in order to like like let's be real mattel did not fund this or mattel and wb didn't fund this movie because of greta gerwig's artistic vision that's not how business works. They did it because they knew that this could sell tickets and this could sell toys. This could resurrect Barbie as a brand and it could launch this insane idea of a Mattel cinematic universe. And I and so the whole time it leaves me with like a weird conflicted feeling of you're doing your best to like call out the negative aspects of this kind of business culture but at the same time you're literally making the money at the while you're doing it and so did you have any of those feelings or did you just did it just was it so fun that that didn't bother you i mean i think we are in a particular state in film history right now where there is this emphasis on meta modernism where there is this like idea of calling things out and breaking the fourth wall, but also finding something like earnest and real in the midst of it too. And so like, that's what I see with Barbie. I think it just follows that same trend that we have seen for the past like few years of this rise of movies about the multiverse, but also having like a heart involved or I mean, I even say Deadpool, like, you know, being able to poke fun at everything, but it's still like this really sweet, like love story and a solid like superhero movie too. So like, I, Barbie is never going to please everybody. And I think that's the thing that I keep seeing in the criticism right now of this movie isn't feminist enough. This movie uh what isn't Wait, feminist what? at all people are just no way yeah oh yeah like the discourse has already started but that's insane but barbie has always caused discourse like we literally see that in the movie like yes barbie came out and like showed girls like you can have all these different jobs before women's lib came to be but also created a, a type of standard of like what a woman is supposed to look like what is stereotypical yeah. barbie um setting back women's lib and uh equality the equality movement for years and like there is always going to be this tug and push and pull with barbie and i don't think barbie the movie is setting out to be the answer for it all but i think it is meant to hit the touchstones of like, yes, Barbie is all of these things. Barbie is complicated. Barbie is part of this brand of toys that this movie exists for merchandise. That is what Space Jam was all about back in the day. Like that is what the Transformers movies yeah. have been. Like this is a business for profit for merchandise. And yet you can still find something in there in the midst of it 
So, yeah, I feel like I felt that that isn't the biggest issue I have with the movie. My issue comes with Ken, which we could okay. put a pin in that. Let's talk about Ken. Okay, we yeah, can talk, talk about, about Ken. Ken. Yeah. So I had a feeling that Ken would be a problem based on what we saw in the trailers and what they like the poster being like, she's everything. He's just Ken. It's like, that's very pointed. What are you getting at here? And I love his story. I think Ryan Gosling is, he is pure energy. Like it looks like he had the most fun making this movie. And I, he said that. And he said that about it. Exactly. And I really hope he gets nominated. I'm serious. He, mm-hmm. I think he really pulls in an incredible performance. My problem is that I don't love the way that Ken and Barbie's story ended together. Because I do think there is an element that I'm glad she apologized to him and said, I didn't, I took you for granted in a lot of ways. And she did. I don't like this trend that you can have like a strong, I'm not going to say that, you can have a female character and not also find love. I do like that that's not her end game. That's not her end story. When That doesn't define her. Yeah. Right. But to be able to find each other and find genuine connection, I feel like would have made an even more impactful ending. And... I don't want that to continue to be this like narrative of like in order to be this like female role model like you don't have to find love and that's also why like I wish we had Midge more in the story because instead of just a joke yeah because like there are women who do want to be pregnant they do want to be moms like that's feminism (laughs) feminism is all about the the idea of choice of like as a woman being able to live your life the way that you want to if you want to be a career woman you can if you want to be a mom you can like if you want to be pregnant like midge and then flip the baby like the stomach around and there is a newborn there like and you want is that, that what doll? happens that is, is that that's the doll yeah you just, oh my god that's that's terrifying but it, it got <laughs> discontinued so you didn't get to see <laughs> it guess, yeah. but like that is the whole thing, you know? Like, I wish we would have gotten more time with, like, all of these, like, ancillary Barbies. I'm so glad we got a lot of Alan. Alan was great. Michael Sarah never changed. Freaking perfect. Yeah. But, yeah, I wish we would have had more, like, stereotypical Barbie. That is her ending, and that's fine. But I wish, like, it didn't come at the cost of, like, Ken, even though Ken does need to find himself and have like an identity apart from like a relationship, I think that is totally healthy and important. But like, let's also not throw out like romance in the process too, because they also have great chemistry together. I'll say this there is, like I said, a potential here for a sequel. I think it sets that up, and I think that could be a great potential sequel is them finding that naturally in the way that some people think of you know like you were made for each other but then you're actually making that choice Mm -hmm. instead of because somebody else told you you were supposed to be together Mm -hmm. i personally definitely related to that part of the ken story and her having to push him away and 
and being like, listen, you can't have it be all about me. To me, that was one of the most impactful parts for men Mm -hmm. because I've been that guy in relationships. I've been the guy who put all of the expectations on a woman that was unfair. She couldn't possibly live up to all of the things that I needed her to be for me. Mm -hmm. And we do that sometimes as men too much. We, we wrap everything up in these relationships and it was important, I think, for it to find a way to like push back on that and, and leave everybody at least in a place that they were going to explore who they were individually. Mm -hmm. I agree with ancillary Barbies. Like I didn't feel like I got enough from them to make this have the depth that I wanted it to have because they were all great. Like Hari Neff, Issa Rae, Emma Mackey. Where was my Emma Mackey looks like Margot Robbie joke though? I like, know. I, I, I fully expected her to show up as stereotypical Barbie as a joke, but I, they, come on, come on. It's, it's right, right there. there. <laughs> but I think it's because they made her brunette and they gave did. her some extra freckles. And I'm like, no, you could have done it. Also, we Alexandra Ship I thought was incredible as Barbie as well. Um, I wanted more uh, Nicola Coughlin, who was handing out Nobel Peace Prizes at the very beginning, and I love her from Bridgerton, and I just wanted like more of her. Yeah, and even some of the Kens too, like Kingsley Benadir, like he was hilarious. And once he got the coat on at the end, I was like, I'm so proud of you. But also, I don't trust you because you're a scroll right now in Secret Invasion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I wanted to see more of them outside of, they were shown to us in two ways. One was being only their one job, their one type of Barbie. And the other was when they were obsessed with the Kens because they were brainwashed into the patriarchy of horses for some reason because <laughs> ryan gosling fell in love with horses ken fell in love with horses that was such a weird random thing but hilarious um so I, yeah i'm hoping if we do get more from this and i'd be totally down for that like give me a sequel for once like i think that'd be really cool uh, but i would like to expand upon different personalities and, and let them have something to do other than just sit around and represent a thing. Yeah. And I and I'd like to see Barbies, like the different Barbies, not just stereotypical Barbie, like also come to those places of like, this is what it means for me to be Barbie. And not all of it to be, be a bit more like have career, have relationship, or like, I mean President Barbie, I think I still can be President Barbie, you know, like I Love Issa Rae. She when she the Mattel logo came up as she said that was incredible, and when Will Ferrell was like, "Call me mother," she's like, "No, thank she's you." Fantastic. She's fantastic, and I love the Supreme Court joke at the end. Too. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> when when he's like, "Circuit," <laughs> can we, you know, can we just get something? She's like, "Let's start at the Circuit just Court," and down you'll you'll eventually get the same thing we we or you gave us, which was just like a it was just a perfect mic drop. Yeah. Oh yeah, like the and even. The scene when Margot Robbie's Barbie is crying and then the narrator, Helen Mirren, by the way, perfect, just pops in and she's like, the filmmakers would like to say that like this line does it. It's hard to actually believe it because it's Margot Robbie saying it. It's like, yes, so <laughs> thank that you. Actually, that was a minor criticism I had in a way. And I don't, I don't know if criticism is the right word, but it was like a thought that came into my mind. I was like, you know. It's funny that you're trying to make that point as a joke, but the reality is we are 
never going to look like or have the talent of Margot Robbie. So in a way, like we're not, I mean, I don't know what else you could do. Like I get it, but like you're kind of, you're kind of still making a joke about something that nobody can achieve to be her. Like she is unique. She is that special. But I think that perfectly ushers into America Ferreira's, you know, like what it means to be a woman and the the contradictions that come with it of like, we're never too pretty or we can't be too pretty because like we have to like look out for the sisterhood, but also we want to like shock like a romantic interest. We want to be skinny, but like we can't call it skinny. We have to say healthy, but like at the end of the day, it's still being skinny because if it being healthy and skinny, it doesn't represent all body types, but that's like a struggle that we face about self image. And like, I think, I think starting it with a joke like that was able to help usher in and make that particular point and that particular scene really land. It's, yeah, I, I for me, it landed Good. hard to start with that and then to go into that because I thought like it kept the tone right in my mind, or at least for me, that's how yeah, it worked. No, that's, that's awesome. Great, I think I mentioned the sound, but great song choices. One of the things I love is using song lyrics, and I I will sometimes send them to people as like, I'll be like sending you a song. But if I do that, it's not because I want you to listen to the song because I like the song. It's because I'm trying to like use the lyrics to say something that I, for some reason, I'm being stupid and won't just say. Mm -hmm. I do that all the time. And I felt like this movie did a great job of doing that with its songs. So like... (laughs) When they're sell when they're singing Matchbox Twenty, oh my I mean, gosh! I mean, the perfectness of the way the lyrics work to tell the story <laughs> yes. is—it's not only hilarious, but it's scathingly to the point and critical at the same time. It's just—it's a perfect encapsulation of what the movie does at its best and what it does most of the time throughout. Is that that balance of being able to be hilarious but you know in the back of your head like dude's got to stop acting like that Mm -hmm. like that's not okay yeah i'm always a big fan of a good soundtrack and a great needle drop and to be able to use music that and songs that aren't as frequently used so like matchbox 20 was such like a great pick and also uh, Closer I Am Defined by the Indigo Girls, I thought was also great uh, needle yeah. drop in there. And a lot of the original music, too, I've been jamming to. So, like, I think across the board, like, they did a great job with their soundtrack. Yeah, me too. Did we miss anything? Any, any other topics you want to touch on? No, I mean, I I adore Barbie. I've seen it twice now, and I just think it's just really fun to have to have a big budget movie like this helmed by a female director with definitely a female voice, but not just like, but also Noah Baumbach deserves credit as well because he helped, you know, write the yeah. screenplay for this. I just think it's really exciting to see Greta, who has a lot of respect for a lot of the film industry to, you know, succeed big like this, you know, like, we talk about it with like men, like male directors early on, and like we are very quick to like just put them on pedestals. But like it's so harder to do that for women, and female directors have 
to prove themselves a lot more in this industry in order to kind of get that type of respect, get those type of types of budget. And if Barbie would have failed, like this would be a different conversation and the criticism coming down on her would be exponentially different than if it were a male director. So to see her bet big and Margot Robbie bet big on her because it was her production company and she reached out to her to see them both succeed like this is just really exciting and and honestly makes me really excited to see um Greta Gerwig take on Chronicles of Narnia coming up because that's next for her and I'm like you can do whatever you want and I'm there okay yeah I was a little nervous about that Uh, not because I don't love Greta because I think her first two movies are masterpieces uh before this already um, but yeah, at this point, I don't, I can't doubt her. I can't have any worries at all. Um, and you make a great point because someone like Chloe Zhao, who wins an Oscar and then goes to the Marvel machine and just people eat her alive and act like she hasn't ever done anything. In her, which, you know, successful, which is ridiculous. Which is ridiculous. Insane. Also, Eternals is great and I'm an Eternals, Eternals truther. I agree with you. So <laughs> people just need to get on our level, honestly. Yeah. Chloe, I want you to Clearly. make Eternals too if that ever happens. So yes. yes. After the vampire. Well, I think, I'm glad we're getting the vampire yes. movie first. That's going to be fun. That's going to be a lot of fun. All right. So switching gears from pink, bubblegum, bouncy, happy, fun. Existential to- crises. <laughs> Well, they both they both have existential crises. That's such a weird tie-in for this that we didn't really know fully well until we saw them both. But they both are struggling with these things in a big way. What are your overall thoughts on Oppenheimer? Just like a high level, how did it go for you? So, I did take some time to revisit different uh, Christopher Nolan movies before seeing Oppenheimer. He is a director that I like, but I don't love, or I don't, uh, I haven't explored all of his filmography, but I have caught up on a lot of it, so I could really appreciate Oppenheimer, or at least that's what I think of, like, you know, kind of seeing the trajectory that he's been on and kind of getting an idea of, like, what he could do. And I really was blown away by Oppenheimer, the way people have been calling it like a masterpiece or even like his magnum opus. Like, I can agree with that. Like, there is so much like skill on display. Clearly, you see like how he's really been building up, kind of like making the atomic bomb. Like, Christopher Nolan has been building up, really assembling a crew together in order to craft these like incredible movies that you desperately need to be seen on the big screen but you have like the culmination of a collaboration with uh Killian Murphy who he's been working with since Batman Begins and to see him in a leading role like this is long overdue but like he really does an incredible job I was so blown away by him and I was already a fan I did see Peaky Blinders okay like I know he he has the acting chops but and also I love how I'm a sucker for this I don't know why but the change in color like in the movie from like being in color to going to black and white and figuring out like what that actually was representing to um, the cinematography on display, the production design of Los Alamos to the bomb itself going off. Like 
those 20 minutes leading and just the anticipation of it, like, he really is a master of building up that uh, anticipation so that when it happens, it is, like, the full effect. And Mm -hmm. it is truly remarkable. Um, And I have to give a shout out to Robert Downey Jr. I'm Team Iron Man or Die, but, like, to see him just really immerse himself into this role i haven't seen him act like this in a while and i'm so happy for him i just think he just gave another incredible career performance and i'm so glad he got to work with somebody like christopher nolan um to do that and i can get into more stuff because i know i'm just rambling at this point but on the whole like i am really blown away by oppenheimer no pun intended and i do look (laughs) forward to seeing it um another time yeah yeah i agree with all that stuff uh it the robert downey jr thing in particular i think it's fantastic that we're probably going to get hopefully get two best supporting actor nominations out of these two movies um i think if we end up with out having ryan gosling and robert downey jr there something's wrong like i I mean yes (laughs) these performances are brilliant uh and and i loved seeing him get to do something other than tony stark and so, like you said, something at this level, and he, he's just, ugh, I mean, he's playing a villain, essentially, like what is sort of the equivalent of a villain at this point, because that's what, you know, self-aggrandizing government vindictive personalities <laughs> are, and that's the point. Uh, but yeah, he he blew me away. I think the whole ensemble cast is just incredible in this. I think every performance is is like lifting the movie up. And I think that speaks to Christopher Nolan's clout in the industry that all these people, I pointed out this in my uh, spoiler free review, but you have somebody like Rami Malek. This man won a best actor Oscar a couple of years ago. He has like four minutes of screen time and is made to look like a buffoon in three of them. And, and yet he signed on to do this because it's Christopher Nolan, right? incredible to me and those scenes like and his big scene like made it all worth them like why did why did he sign up for this why did he do this and you're like oh that's why but also yes like you've got emily blunt florence Pugh, matt damon kenneth branagh james darcy i know I'm the pretty- return of josh hartnett the return of some- josh hartnett it's almost hard to know it's josh hartnett Yes. He's got so much dad energy. You're like, that's not that's not Josh Hartnett. It's not the Josh Hartnett I remember. Nope. Or even David Crumholtz. I had to be like, oh my gosh, that's him. What's up? <laughs> yeah. Yep. It, but the fact that he was able to like bring all these people in here and they really are give like firing on all cylinders. Just the performance that's we're given. I do I do wish we could have gotten more from Florence Pugh. Maybe it's just because I'm a su- I'm a big fan of hers, but just I felt like we could have gotten just a little bit more before her fate um, in the film, because there was also just some un- there was some unclarity, there was confusion over like the true nature of their relationship that I wish was fleshed out a little bit more instead of me going to a Wikipedia page. But, you know, we're here for three hours. We also have other places to be, I guess. We got a bomb to build. That's true. I Well, I will say that is the one criticism that stuck with me on my second viewing. The first viewing, 
I want to get into this here in just a second, but I, I had issues with timelines. You know, Nolan loves this. And so I've, I've always, he's my favorite director and I've come to just accept that it's probably going to take a couple viewings for me because I need to know his destination before I can appreciate his beginnings. And so I struggle with that. And then I struggle with the way that Florence Pugh and Emily Blunt were used. The second time around, I have no problem with Emily Blunt. I think that she is able to get her flowers in the end because we see that she is more than just there to be kind of the other woman, which is weird because mm-hmm. she's his wife, but that's that's sort of how she gets treated for most of the movie. But that, that third act where she starts to stand up mm-hmm. for herself and for him, I think she really comes into her own there and it and it and it's fair. Florence Pugh, I did feel like if anything, it was weird to me that Nolan chose this to be his R rated movie and when he hasn't had one in twenty one years because I did not necessarily need Florence Pugh naked for you to make the point. And I think yeah. that the first scene in particular to me where they they first meet and I, I felt that was probably maybe the one biggest moment of excess in this movie because it, it was just, I don't know, like you're already going to say those famous words. Mm-hmm. I think it was cool to have something planted in the film to show us that he had been reading Sanskrit in this book. And so he would be familiar with that. So that once he says it in the the big moment with the bomb that everybody's aware of, that we understand why there's a history. But it just felt weird to tie that into like a sexual encounter with his mistress. Yeah. And honestly, I just wish I had more of them kind of going back and forth because clearly they were very much intellectual peers and I would have loved to see like more of that between them if we were gonna have the sex scenes that we did you know so yeah especially with the way they portrayed her as needing him like she makes it very clear he's like he is obsessed with her like she is his forever woman in a sense and like we are only all we get is the one date the one time that they meet that's it and the one time they meet then they have sex, and then every time after that is just like, like two jokes about him bringing flowers. <laughs> yeah, and then it's and then it's the hotel scene, and then she's she's dying. Yeah, so yeah, that was the one piece that like I wish would have been handled a little better. But overall, for me, like the timelines. Mm-hmm. Did you struggle with the timelines at all when you watched it? I did a little bit. Okay. I mean, but that is also par for the course with. Christopher Nolan, he loves his timelines and he loves, I was really intrigued by the way that he set things up and like as part of Oppenheimer's, you know, uh, hearing that he went through and having so many of those questions asked to people brought in to be cut off and we go back in time and then that is later paid off, you know, there was like, so that and the repetition of the Einstein scene, I honestly, I don't know about you, but I don't think I needed Oppenheimer's like college days or university days abroad. Honestly, I feel like some of that could have easily been cut out of this runtime um, and also kind of create clarity. But I guess like his his haircut was supposed to help us as it just continued to recede and recede and he become 
you know, a, sh- a shadow of a man throughout the, the runtime. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm looking forward to the second round of this movie. I've only seen it once, so there are still, like, places or, like, pieces of the movie that I am still trying to, like, wrap my brain around of, like, where it all lines up. And why did Strauss have the black and white scenes? I'm still I can want- explain. Huh? I will explain. Great. So here's the thing. I thought there were three timelines when I saw it the first time. There's only two. And very briefly, in the very beginning of the film, Nolan introduces them with chapter one and chapter two. It yes. says like fission and fusion, I think. Yes. Okay. So the film is set with the backdrop of the the black and white scenes are essentially what from 99% of the movie is the present. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it is his Strauss's Senate confirmation hearing. And then you get pieces of backstory. The color parts are moving forward from beginning up to the hearing point mm-hmm. where Oppenheimer is getting like grilled, the, the kind of like backdoor hearing. Yes. And so that's moving forward at that point. And then both timelines individually, the color and the black and white, both have flashbacks within them, which yes. gets somewhat confusing on that first viewing. On the second one, I I felt like I already had... So the first time, it's tons of names. I knew nothing about this history. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who all these scientists were. And there's like 30 of them we meet, it feels like. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's it's a lot. I understood where we were going and I knew by by knowing what the scenes with him while Oppenheimer was being grilled at his hearing and then what the Senate confirmation hearing mm-hmm. like how that was going to play out it actually felt brilliant to me okay because it all fit and like narratively I felt like every jump in time we were actually getting enhancing information about Oppenheimer throughout mm-hmm. and so I I do. I, I, I don't know how to fully like criticize it as a critic because part of me says, should people have to watch a movie twice to understand it? Mm-hmm. Maybe not. But I personally found it completely understandable, unlike Tenet. I mean, I love Tenet, but I still don't understand Tenet fully. This, to me, made sense that second time with okay. the two timelines. I mean, I think on the whole, like, the film makes sense and something that like I do want to bring up is I really respect the fact that you know I and I'm gonna parallel Barbie here I like the fact that we get the story of Oppenheimer this man this scientist this important figure in history that he we do get the push and pull of like what this invention did for the world and what it did for him as a person that there is like the tug of that tug of war of like he was put on time because of this great invention but like you are hearing about like the death rate in japan years after the bombs dropped and like how that has put a heavy weight on him as well and i don't I think the movie does a really good job of not trying to glorify this man. And I really 
respect that from them. And I really respect the fact that they never showed us footage or images of the victims of the uh, bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki because, like, that is devastating on its own. And, like, the bomb is really cool when they show, like, the test of it. But, like, once it is sent off and we know what's going to happen, like, I'm glad that there was never a moment of trying to, like, either glorify that moment or even, like, say, look at how terrible this is. Like, it's respecting the victims of, like, the atrocities that they um, experienced. Or at least that is, like, my view of it. And I'd really love uh, somebody from, like, Asian descent to, like, also talk on that scene or, like, talk on, like, not having that depiction and, like, what that means for them. But for me, I felt like that was, like really respectful or it seems really respectful i did too and this is what really takes it up a notch for me as a biopic i think that it's unlike 99 percent of movies that we've ever seen for biopics it takes that formula and when you put the just to me career best score work from Gorenson and incredible sound design right it is incredible just propulsive throughout the movie and it, it, it makes you not feel that three hours in the way that you normally would you may feel a little bit but i think that it moves along the the music and the sound help to keep your your tension up or your anxiety you know your interest you know up and excitement up at times and whatever the the feeling might be but most biopics don't have what it turns into like a jfk-esque almost all the president's men like sequence at the end of it or you know this courtroom drama and it's it's these three sort of distinct you know, acts, in my opinion. You get, you got your act one of like him going around and you're learning and meeting young Oppenheimer. And how did he become the most sought after mind in physics in America? That's the first. And then you get, okay, now we're going to go. We've made a decision. We need to like make this bomb because we're in a race against the Germans. How did that come to be? Mm-hmm. And then the last act is, what was the fallout for him personally and the whole way through, like you said, I agree with you hundred percent. I don't think this is praising J Robert Oppenheimer in any way. It is not a movie about a hero making him heroic. It is not a movie about making him a villain. It is a movie about saying, this is a man who was a genius of our time, who was responsible for being the lead in creating this world changing technology. That is a that is merely a fact of what happened. Mm-hmm. And what I see in him is a ton of flaws, a womanizer, an asshole, <laughs> like like what he did to the way he treated Strauss on the stand by making yeah. fun of him. One of the things that made Strauss vindictive that he that was totally unnecessary. He does this throughout like he he says things to people and I'm just like, what? A, like you're a jerk yeah. at times. But at the same time. He wrestled deeply with what this invention was going to mean and and how it should be used. And the problem is, or not problem, but like, I don't see it as a problem. That's, That's the thing is, I see it as just the way life is. Life is not always black and white. It's not straightforward. They wanted Oppenheimer to make a choice. They wanted him, the whole movie, people were pushing him to just say one or the other definitively and he wouldn't come out and say something definitively and i think 
that is part of what makes him so flawed, but also what makes this story interesting because it's just telling us what history is. It's not saying that he's good or bad for what he did. And I, I, I liken this to people who've criticized Oppenheimer as if we were glorifying the man that killed the Japanese uh, people in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. That's no different than saying like the man who created firearms is responsible for every mass shooting. Mm -hmm. It's it's no different. Like he didn't do that. He made a tool. And it got used and there's a responsibility that comes with that and it ate him alive for his entire life. And that's just the story that we got told. And I really appreciated that they mentioned that story of Dr. Nobel and how the Nobel Peace Prize, like the Nobel Prize came into be. He was the inventor of dynamite. And because I didn't know that, of by the, way. <laughs> the, the toll that that took on him and how it was being used, he wanted to put something good into the world. And so he created the Nobel Prize. And so... That is why we, and I liked that they mentioned that. Also, I studied science a lot in college. So a lot of these like uh, scientists were brought up, in, including Bohr. I was like, oh my gosh, I studied so much of this. Like, this is nuts. Um, my I life took a very it. different direction, obviously. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I am not the face of Barbenheimer, apparently. I'm not at med school, but I did get a kick out of uh, seeing like equations on chalkboards and all of these like great scientists who like are you know titans in that field uh to kind of like see them like as they were in this moment in time in history which was really cool did you feel like nolan did a good enough job of making that interesting because there's so much history there's so much like math on screen and stuff there we obviously don't need to understand how fission and fusion work and mm -hmm. i kind of appreciate that he doesn't stop and go into one big monologue we get little snippets of it throughout and i thought that was a really great way of doing it i agree because i feel like there's the chance of like you took too much time to explain it you would lose so many people you only need to know for this for this particular movie for how he was telling this man's story you only need to know, like, you only need to know snippets and just basic ideas without getting into, I think, getting into the weeds. Though I'd love for some quantum physicist to make a YouTube video breaking down, like, well, he forgot to mention this part of this or whatever. I will watch that video. Probably already out there, yeah. <laughs> it has to be. There's got to be the video. I agree. I, I want to see that as well. Uh, and I like that your point earlier about like, go look up the women on Wikipedia, learn more about them as well. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't it didn't need to be their story overall, but like there's there's more to learn and there's no reason not to seek that out. And it's nice that like you can have a movie like Oppenheimer right now and maybe you're not getting the most depth out of these women in Oppenheimer's life. Then you can hop over to a different theater and watch Barbie and really get the female experience through that. So, like, where Christopher Nolan drops the ball, you can just pick it back up with Greta Gerwig. So, this yeah, is why Barbenheimer works. They complement each other in a really, really weird way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's really interesting. The last thing I kind of wanted to mention specifically about Oppenheimer that I thought was brilliant is so the Trinity test. Yep. Some of my fellow critics came out of that screening saying they were underwhelmed by it. I felt the opposite. And I, I felt the opposite because it's not overblown. Mm -hmm. You know, pun intended. It is it is accurate. 
to what history kind of says that was going down. The tension, as you mentioned, those 20 minutes leading up to that, when they say they're going to go for it, and you know, in the rain, and you don't know what's going to happen, and and Matt Damon, God bless him, also oh phenomenal. My gosh, yes, so many great like one-liners from Matt Damon. I thought like when they're building up to the bomb, and and everybody's taking side bets, and oh, yeah. that near zero joke comes back, and he's like, you know, what more could you ask for than near zero? And Matt Damon's like. Zero. Zero. General Groves is like zero. I zero. I want zero. I don't want. Are you telling me there is a chance that we could literally erupt the entire world? But the way that they faithfully capture for the sound to go out. So this is a choice that I think only my only someone like Christopher Nolan makes this decision to have a movie that is almost constantly backed by Gorenson's score and the sound to go completely silent for three minutes maybe and show you people reacting to it and then to have that heavy hitting boof and whoosh and and the bomb effect because that's really what happened when the bomb went off people did not actually hear it in the test sites right away because sound took time to then Mm -hmm. get to them and i just think that it's both a brilliant like artistic and factual choice Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a big fan of of that particular scene. I was not uh, underwhelmed, and I did watch it in seventy millimeter IMAX. So, like, I do, I got the full effect, and like, I was bracing for the sound. I was bracing for that moment, and so when it didn't, it kind of a, it allowed me to really take in what was the image before me like this uh the explosion and just like the beauty and the terror of it without being distracted by sound when I was bracing to like cover my ears and just like you know grip myself and all the memes of like you're gonna feel an actual explosion go off like you know to have a moment of like beauty and terror rolled into one to really land and then to but also to further show the accuracy of the moment i just i applaud them for uh just that decision and yeah the sound mixing for this movie is incredible uh i can't believe this isn't a han zimmer joint but lewin Gorenson, get your flowers that like what a score it's incredible and one quick shout out to Jack Quaid, who's wearing a holiday sweater and banging on bongo drums. What is happening? I love you, but what? I know. It's wild. Like, again, like somebody who is a lead in other movies or at least a supporting, you know, star in like the Scream movie. And he's in this for two or three scenes and a couple of them where he's banging bongos. It's hilarious. I- I love him. And also Josh, Josh Peck. I have loved him since yep. Drake and Josh, so I'm really proud of him. The one other question I had that I wanted us to kind of hit on was the ending of this movie. Mm-hmm. So we get this incredible buildup, the Senate hearing. He's not confirmed. Alden Ehrenreich also with great- Incredible lo- as well. Yeah, little, I mean, the way that he, man, oh, I just oh. loved his scathing, like, comebacks uh, to- uh strauss when he was when he found out what strauss was actually doing showing that someone in government actually had a semblance of a little bit of a 
you know, integrity. Great joke about, not joke, but when he points out Kennedy, uh, that the whole theater was like, Of course, yes! good old you know? Kennedy. Um, but anyway, he's great. But this all builds up with that confirmation being denied and then Oppenheimer ending up going through the exact cycle that Albert Einstein had told him would happen, which is a really tough way to end this because it shows you how a country throws people away once it's done with them. Once you've achieved a thing that they need you to achieve and you're no longer supporting an agenda that they need you to support, you just get tossed away and then they come back to you 30, 40 years later and they're like, oh, you're about to die. Let's go ahead and post either posthumously or right down there before your deathbed. We'll give you some some awards to act like we actually cared. And then it ends on a very harrowing moment, essentially telling us Nolan is saying that the world is still hanging in the balance. And I felt like he was saying Eventually, this is how the world's going to end. What did you get out of that? I didn't take it as like, this is how the world is going to end. Like, this is our future. But I did see it as like a precautionary like warning of these weapons still exist. All of these countries have them. We have been still building them up for years because of the flame that Oppenheimer had given to the people, the Prometheus story, like, we are still living in the consequence of that and that fear that came post the bomb droppings and like eventually the hydrogen bomb and everything that they explored there. Like those are all very real threats to this day. And if we don't look at, at my takeaway from this is simply this. If you watch the movie, it's a warning of like, it shows you the full consequence of what we get with this. And if we're not careful and if we're not making smart decisions about who has a say in what those weapons are being used for, then that can be our very real future. And based on our political climate, who's to say that that could be something very near our future? Like, we yeah. are not in the 80s anymore where people were really fearing like we were it was all going to end in nuclear genocide but like they never went away we just don't think about them the same anymore and this is a reminder that no it, they're still there yeah we still live in this world where at any time the first the first person to be willing to push the button starts mm-hmm. the chain reaction um, you can't put the genie back in the bottle it, no. it's out once Oppenheimer created it and that's the whole point of the struggle he goes through in this movie is that once it happened there's no going back now like we are where we are now and we can't undo it mm-hmm. and I think it does kind of say like you need, we have to let's make sure we're learning history so we don't repeat ourselves mm-hmm. maybe next time a technology comes around. I, I hate to say this and bring this up because it's not in this movie at all. And every other movie seems to be about it right now. But in a way, 
you could think of this as like a precautionary tale against AI, even though it doesn't bring it up. Yes! It's a better precautionary tale against AI than a st- another stinking movie that uses AI as a villain. Because it's saying, whatever the next thing is that's going to change the world forever, be careful because you don't know, you aren't going to be able to control it in the way you think you're going to control it. And that's the tension, too, that I, you know, in the field of science is like there it is about exploration. It is about like having theories and testing and being able to create something and move science forward. Unfortunately, what comes with moving science forward and I'm very much for like technology and knowledge and science. Like, yes, like we should be striving to learn more about our universe. I think that's very important. But the danger does come once you open a box, you can't put it back in the box, and you can only move forward. And you hear that with Oppenheimer as he talks about the bomb, very much in theoretical. And then once he's in the war room with the Secretary of Secretary of Defense or Secretary of War, I'm so sorry, I don't remember, but he really was talking about theory in like for the sake of exploration of like you know we have made this thing it doesn't necessarily need to be used but like this is technology like you once you you're creating something new and yeah there's always gonna be that tension there and ai is a really real thing because we are now living in a time where ai is not just after writer's jobs or actor's jobs but every job and being very like this is very cool, real technology, and we want to support science and like what we can do with technology, but it also comes at a very steep price, and we have to be willing to pay it or really consider was it worth it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah. I wasn't trying going. to get philosophical no, here. That's, but. that's beautiful. That's a perfect <laughs> way to end it. If it keeps going like this, we're all going to need to put on rollerblades and find our way to Barbie land. Yes. <laughs> get some neon rollerblades. Let's go. <laughs> oh, well, that was great. I appreciate you being here so much. This has been fun. And yeah. I'm glad we got to talk through these awesome movies and this really cool event. Where can people find you online? Where can they find your work when you are... <laughs> doing it. I know you haven't done a lot lately, but you've got plenty out there. So where can people find that stuff? Yeah, well, first, thank you again for having me. I love uh, I loved the first time when I was on here. And I'm glad you asked me back again. I was so afraid I'd like, you know, <laughs> no, not at all. You were <gasps> wonderful both times. <laughs> thank you. Um, well, you can, uh, you can find me on the interwebs. You can find me still on Twitter and Instagram and Blue Sky and Threads and whatever is left out there for the next social media place. At Meredith Loftus, um, you can find some of my writing at Collider um, and at Collider, at Next Best Picture, and at Marvelous Geeks. I was recently in a segment on Inside Edition, and it is on their YouTube page about Barbenheimer. I found out that Inside Edition posted a TikTok and a reel about it, so unfortunately, if you'd seen my face in my Barbenheimer t-shirt, I'm sorry, but also I love it, but I guess you can find me there too. I don't keep up with these things, but yeah, that is, that's where you can find me. Thanks again for having me on. Yeah, excellent. You are welcome. And you can find us everywhere that is mentioned in the show notes, of course. Patrick always does our outro, and he's not here. I don't even know what we're covering next week because we haven't talked about it since he's on vacation, Ooh. but 
we will have an episode next week for sure. And as always, there will be my FF Plus spoiler-free reviews. I think coming up is going to be Haunted Mansion and The Last Slam Dunk, I think is what it's called. Uh, it's an anime film coming to us from G-Kids. So that'll be this week's reviews. Until next time, keep watching and keep feeling film. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.